Welcome to the Studio Break Podcast. I'm your host, David Linaway. For our 49th episode, we have artist Dawn Rowe, who splits her time teaching in Florida and living in North Carolina. We talk at great length about all of the bodies of work that she's created that explore documentary, interior landscape, exterior landscape, portraiture, and how she combines all of those things into her most recent series of works based on the Australian gold fields. So please stay tuned for that. Once again, if this is the first time that you've checked out Studio Break before, we have a variety of podcasts on studiobreak.com. Please scroll down, check them all out. Again, each of those entries have slideshows of artists' work along with links to their websites. And of course, if you like this podcast or blog, please share it with your friends, faculty members, students, anyone that would be interested in the visual arts and finding more out about new artists to check out. You can also do this by looking over to the left on the sidebar. There's an archive function, and you can go month by month, which is also another way to go, just to make sure that you didn't miss anything. Of course, if you are not satisfied, there are a variety of ways to find out more about Studio Break. One of the best ways is to check out our Studio Break Facebook page. Just search for Studio Break and you'll find it. And please go ahead and like us. Again, we provide updates all the time of future guests, shows that past guests are having, and all sorts of goodies. So please like us there. Once again, you can follow us on Twitter at Studio Break. So go ahead and do that. And lastly, one of the best ways and easiest ways to follow the podcast is to become a subscriber in iTunes. Just search for Studio Break under podcasts. And again, We'd really appreciate it if you subscribe, and if you like the show, please leave us some feedback. It really helps out others that are looking for similar podcasts, visual art podcasts. And again, it's a great way to spend time in the studio while you're working, listening to artists share stories about their development. You might get some ideas, or if you've got a long commute like I do, it's a great way to pass the time and hear about a new artist. So please go ahead and subscribe to us in the iTunes store. And I can assure you, the UPS man definitely wants to hear all about Studio Break, so please let them know. All right, stay tuned. All right, welcome back to Studio Break, and I'm happy to be joined today by Dawn Rowe. How are you? I'm excellent. Thank you. How are you? <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm doing good. I'm doing good. And you know, interested in talking about your, your photo and, and video work and all the stuff that you have going on. But um, if you could maybe just set us up with a little bit of a background where you're currently at and, um, you know, what you're doing. Yeah, definitely. Um, I just started a new semester here at Rollins College where I'm teaching, which is in Winter Park, Florida. Um, as I was mentioning to you, when I'm not teaching, I actually live in Asheville, North Carolina, and I kind of wound up here after uh, living in a series of places originally from Michigan, living in Portland, Oregon for about a decade, then Chicago, and now down in Florida, of all places. Well, that's interesting. Is that something that you think then affects the different types and, and bodies of work that you make? Yeah, no, it's absolutely. I'm sure we'll talk about that a lot today. It's had a huge impact, you know, just the different topography, the different looks of the spaces that I've lived and driving through different spaces all the time. It wasn't really a conscious decision so much to do all this moving. Um, I like it, though. I can't kind of imagine not not doing it this way. Well, and, and so where are you from then originally? And, and was that was that um, that relationship uh, budding already then? 
Probably. I mean, I, I'm from the upper peninsula of Michigan, actually, which is, um, well, I was, I'm from Sault Ste. Marie. So I was born there, lived there for a short time. And then my family moved to the, uh, lower peninsula, but basically my entire childhood was driving back and forth, um, to the UP because my grandparents, my whole family's kind of from there. So there's something, I don't know if you've talked to other people from that part of the country, but there's something really specific about, um, being kind of from upper Michigan, particularly the upper peninsula. It's very desolate, uh, snowy, even up until the summer, practically. So, yeah, uh, all those trips in in the car as a as a kid had s- some impact for sure. And, well, and was it only like a, a experience of of the landscape, you know, in the car, or were you someone that I don't know was really active and being outdoors? No, well, that's actually a really good question because it's. I still I'm always talking about it. it's really weird or a bit strange that my work is focused on the ended up focusing on the landscape in the way that it does because I am not an quote unquote outdoorsy person. I hate camping. I, you know, never really go hiking. I appreciate and really love the beauty of the natural world, but um I, you know, as a kid screwed around outside a lot and stuff, but I've never been, had any kind of, you know, spiritual attachment to the landscape or or that kind of thing. So it's more, more experiential and kind of a, an everyday way, if that makes any sense. No, I I think it does. Cause there's a, there's a real nice ambiguity and kind of openness that you kind of leave, you know, with your work for people to look at it. And I think a lot of those things kind of make sense to, to think about when looking at your work. Now, was was art making something then that that, be, that became important early on, or was that something that came later for you? Um, in a serious way, it came quite a bit later. Actually, I this is I know I was thinking about that, listening to some of your other interviews. You know, a lot of and a lot of my artist friends too are very much like, well, I always you know, including my partner, he's like, I always knew I was an artist. I've been drawing from a young age, so on and so forth. That's really not me. I have a brother and sister who were really um, artistically inclined, like very, very skilled at drawing and painting. And that's kind of what they did. They are not artists now in their adult life, but I was really um, impacted by being around my sister specifically, but I can't draw for crap or (laughs) paint. I, I took all of those classes, you know, art classes from elementary school through high school, knowing full well how bad I was at it, but still being really interested, um, in art in some sense, like I knew it was important. So I was, you know, kind of just left that, um, I didn't study it in college when I first went to college and then, then just kind of got back interested in it as something that I could possibly do as a practitioner in my kind of mid, mid to late twenties when I went back to undergrad. Well, and and I'm just kind of curious then. So what was there, is there a, a, you know, like a very exciting, you know, moment with trumpets that you, <laughs> like a, like a, a camera descends from the heavens and. Yeah. Well, it's, it's good that you bring that up too, the, the camera, because it's interesting, you know, to make this distinction between, you know, whether I was uh, artistically inclined from a young age, but even if I wasn't so much uh, in the ways that I was just speaking about it, the camera and photographs as objects were something that were really important to me from a, like a very young age, from 
the time I can remember. I was constantly fascinated by family photo albums. My grandmother on my father's side kept these awesome little plastic red books full of um, just snapshots. And I, that's just what I did in my childhood. I constantly surrounded myself, went through shoeboxes of old photographs. And so I was, there was something obviously that I was really interested in about the power and the impact of the photographic image. And I was, you know, my parents were always like, oh, let Dawn take the photograph. You know, she's got the eye or whatever crap. But, <laughs> but so later on, um, it was, I will say for sure that there was a really important instructor in my undergraduate college at Merrillhurst in Portland named Rich Rollins, who just, you know, sometimes there's a teacher that's just like, wow, makes you see how amazing something can be and um, helped me really t- start taking it seriously. So that's trumpet-ish. <laughs> right, right. Well, and and so then you, I don't know, how do you make that decision? Were you, were you, did you take a break from school or were you someone that kind of changed their, their shift in, in terms of what they were looking to do? Yeah, my biography in that sense is a little uh, wonky. Things could have gone very wrong for me at certain points. I, yeah, I was kind of just a little bit of a, a screw up in my uh late teens and early 20s and finally kind of started thinking about, you know, going back to school about 25 and was initially um, going to the Northwest Film Center in Portland because I started getting interested in making kind of short films and some of the people I was hanging around with in Portland were um, kind of independent filmmakers and so what happened was I found out that Merrillhurst College offered a cooperative, uh, they had a cooperative uh, relationship with the film center where you could get part of your credits there and get, you know, a bachelor's degree. So I just kind of started doing that. And like I said, this kind of class and instructor ended up being really important and kind of getting me on the right track of you know, taking things a little bit more seriously. So well, what did you what did you wind up making then at first? Was it something that was more of like a documentary feel? Were you kind of interested in, you know, some of the things that you talk about later in your work, or what? What was the the, the interest or the focus in the beginning? Yeah, that's a, a hugely important question because it was just as you say, it was much more grounded in a kind of traditional documentary, um, even somewhat photojournalistic, I guess, but more of the kind of personal diaristic style. I was just kind of responding to the people in my life. And I, it's funny now because I always remember the fact that I said at one point to, um, during my thesis process with the BFA that I I'll never, you know, make photographs that don't have people in them. I'm so invested in the, you know, human figure and, uh, just the, the human relationships. And now I never photograph people, right. but I mean, yeah, initially it was really, um, about this kind of more everyday kind of documentary style approach to photography. Well, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe some of that earlier work was kind of like a, a documentary, um, portraiture type yeah. work. Is that correct? Yeah, exactly. That was, um, I mean, when I I think back and it's it's like a really obvious trajectory for me, like how I got from where I point A to B, C and so on. But so my life in Portland was it was just a really interesting time period. It was basically the entire decade of my 20s, which is a you know important time period in anyone's life. And so 
a lot of my friends were having um, kids at that time. They were in, it was, they were being brought up in really different ways than I had kind of a lot of different alternative lifestyles and things. And I was just sort of fascinated by, you know, the different subcultural groups of my friends and also just started fixating on these children. I'm sure it had something to do with, you know, relating it to my own childhood and was, so my entire BFA thesis actually was, um, portraits of my friends' kids. And in really sort of not in the kind of way that you would think of as documenting children in sort of happy-go-lucky poses, but just I treated them as seriously as I would treat any kind of subject. I gave them a certain, the you know, a certain kind of respect and was interested in what was coming across from these portraits. Um, so, yeah. And if I'm not mistaken, then so there's a, a big kind of move that that shook that all up. Is that right? Yeah, literally a move across right. the country again. Um, yeah, I so I went to grad school right away after undergrad, and the reason that I did that was because I was 30 for one thing when I finished my undergrad degree, and another, I just I really needed to leave Portland at that time for a lot of reasons, and. So that means I left all of my subjects behind and I wasn't, at first I was like, okay, am I going to wander around in the neighborhoods and photograph the people that I come across, which I tried very briefly. I just don't do that. I'm not like a street photographer in that way. And so I had to, you know, reconsider how I was, how I was thinking about what I was using photography for. Well, and I thought one of the things that was really interesting about that that body of work, and just to be clear, I'm, I'm thinking about um, from the from the sidewalk that series yeah. from from 2002 to, to three. You know, yeah. you, you kind of describe this idea of uh, lonely moments, and I I don't know. I think that's something that seems just generally, I don't know, very fitting when when thinking about your work. Yeah, I mean, I don't see that those images as being that different from what was being conveyed in those portraits of those kids, really, because it was almost as if I was making portraits of those spaces. And so that was right when I moved. So for six or the first semester, I lived in Bloomington Normal when I was going to ISU, after which time I moved up to Chicago and was commuting. But it was um, intense and not all that pleasant for me to be in Bloomington normal at that time and not really knowing anyone and just wandering around and literally photographing from the sidewalk into, into these yards and sort of corners and spaces and in black and white, very much invested in this kind of black and white aesthetic and palette at that time too. So, um, but it's, I, I think that stuff is still in my current work too. Those kinds of insignificant non moment type things. What was it like then and starting your MFA at this point, working with new faculty members, having new peers with different vantage points? Did everyone ask you to, to kind of immediately change everything up and, and start investigating new work and new strategies then? Um, yes and no. Like, I, There's so much to talk about in that little question uh, because it was – I do want to acknowledge how important that MFA program was in the development of, and just where I am now. It was the best sort of kind of random decision I've ever made, for sure. Um, I, but I also want to talk about how important my BFA program was, because that really prepared me for graduate-level work in a way that was awesome. We had very intensive classes that covered, you know, content and, and 
the introduced me to theory in a way that prepared me for graduate level study. But so, but coming in, I was very much this kind of person, as we were just saying, grounded in this documentary style tradition, um, working really deliberately with photography and then getting to ISU was, um, awesome in the end, but, um, hard for me to get used to a little bit at first because it's, uh, very interdisciplinary and you're working with everyone, which is excellent. Um, but I was having trouble at first getting my, my footing in that environment and also just getting used to being so like in the middle of nowhere, but working with, and you know, a lot of the people that you've interviewed on uh, this as well, have talked about the amazing faculty at ISU. I mean, it's a gem in the prairie lands, that place, I have to say. And so what was the what was the first body of work then that you made that, that kind of really stuck with you then in terms of, I don't know, adjusting to the, this, these new surroundings? Well, it was definitely the from the sidewalk stuff, but then that was pretty short-lived because what happened from there was I was feeling like, oh, I'm, I don't have the figure in my work that I thought was so important to me. You know, the human presence isn't there. It's suggested in its absence, but it's not literally there. So I started um, plunking myself in the photograph and making these self-portraits. And by that time I was living in Chicago too. And so just started dealing with this overall discomfort of where I was psychologically and, um, spatially photographing myself on freezing friggin' Lake Michigan and also just in the home. So that led to what ended up being my MFA thesis work, which were color self-portraits, which ended up focusing a lot more on the, the space rather than the figure. And that that's kind of what led to the, the, the space becoming a little bit more prominent in, in my work, my attention to, um, actual physical spaces. Um, and, and then the figure kind of went away after a while. Well, and that makes me wonder, you know, what, what all goes into arranging and organizing these photos? How do you light them? How do you make decisions about the way they're composed? You know, what, what is the process and decision-making that goes into it? I actually love that you just brought that up, that notion of organizing and setting up and arranging, because that is also something that was initially uh, never entered uh, my mind as a possibility for the making, for the taking or creating of a photograph. I always was sort of adamant early on about reacting or responding to that which was there in front of me, that I wasn't arranging or constructing anything. But once you start um, making any kind of self-portrait, you have to make conscious decisions about uh, choices that you're going to make. So that led me to begin realizing that, in fact, it's pretty inconsequential whether or not I've um, constructed or contrived something for the camera. It's still uh, of the world. I'm still responding to something in the world. Um, but in terms of what goes in, that was a real learning process. You know, there were, I was using really crude materials. I had this ridiculous little wind-up timer that I would put on my camera um, that would, you know, release the shutter for me. So I'd have to kind of run into the scene, but I'd also have to measure the focal distance to make sure that I, what I wanted in focus was. But then it just wound up being more about um, the, the spatial things that I mentioned, you know, what aspects of the space do I want to include and how do I want the, you know, quality of light is a very important aspect in my work too. So I was 
thinking a lot about times of day and rooms and how light hit one spot at one time of day and not at another, which makes a lot of sense in terms of my current stuff too. Um, getting a little tangential there. Sorry. <laughs> no, I think, I think, you know, it's, it's interesting cause I just, I, I brought it up just because, you know, there, that whole maybe uh, transition that we were talking about, you know, just, mm-hmm. just about go, starting a, a new degree or kind of being in this new environment, it seems, it's just seemed like a really appropriate thing to think about at the time, just because just exactly as you described, it kind of moves from being this thing that maybe feels like it's um, about documenting something versus, you know, how you're presenting it or, you know, thinking about it. Exactly. And I've become really obsessed lately with thinking through that um, idea of what does it mean to document something versus to record something. And I don't want to go off on one of my absurd um, little threads here, but there is, that's basically where I'm at and where I've been in the last maybe five years is really thinking deeply about what does when you know what a photograph does in and of itself as a thing i mean i'm still really interested in you know documentary modes of working and i still kind of consider myself to be that type of photographer but i really want to think about well what why do they these kinds of images work on us in the way that they do and what is up with that what is the deal with documenting a space and recording or responding to it and yeah well, and, and were there any kind of important things that you're reading or, or things that were kind of making you, you know, shift in terms of, I don't know, the way that you started thinking about more of the the interiors or the, or the I don't know, it's it's just interesting because I can easily see then, you know, how those, those photographs from your thesis might have set up everything else or, yeah. you know, brought about those questions. Were there specific artists that you were looking at that were kind of inf- influencing that at all either or... or? Yeah, there were. I mean, um, I think I was looking, I started to pay more attention to artists that or specifically photographic artists at that time who were making um, staged documentary photographs, like hybrid documentary, like Philip Lorca de Corsia. And um, I'm spacing names right now, but people like Hannah Starkey and that sort of these, these highly contrived photographs that looked very, um, natural but had this like bit of artifice that you could kind of sense as well but so that's a lot of what I was looking at around this the time of that space of daydream stuff I was making but you mentioned you know um whether I was reading things and it was I think probably Bill O'Donnell that mentioned the Bachelard Poetics of Space book to me uh Ben and I and a lot of people at ISU were really kind of charmed and fixated by on that book. So that led me down my path of um, a pretty strong interest. In, and I want to emphasize interest in philosophy. I am by no means um, any kind of <laughs> philosophical scholar. I, you know, I read, we can talk about how I, how I read philosophical texts and, and, you know, how I don't really, uh, let me just say I'm not an expert. <laughs> Right, <laughs> but right. I'm really interested in, and it's part of my sort of practice is reading this kind of stuff, and it just seeps into the way I'm thinking about things. Well, and it's interesting to me because then it seems that you're investigating landscape through interior landscape. Is 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 that how it unfolded, or that's exactly how, yeah? I so 
And it's just funny to, like I say, it seems very obvious to me how one thing led to another because, you know, so making the self-portraits of myself in the spaces started to fixate much more on the spaces. The body is hardly sort of in the images, or at least it's not really in focus. Uh, that leads me to really um, see and, and think more about the resonance of uninhabited interior spaces and, um, then, but what's going on there is I start looking out and through windows and I keep fixating on kind of the landscape and I start literally throwing the focus on the landscape out of the window as opposed to the interior space. So, I mean, if you want to like, so basically I'm paying attention to myself in a space, then I get rid of myself, then I'm paying attention to the space. Then I start paying attention to the outside through the space. So then I decide, well, I guess I'll go outside. Right. Um, so I've been outside for a while now. Although I'm back inside now, interestingly enough, I'm kind of excited to be making interiors again. <laughs> I think one of the things that was really interesting to me and kind of striking when I was kind of going through, you know, a lot of the, the stuff that's on your website, and again, everybody should go check that out for sure. Great to listen to an interview and, and check it out at the same time. So I think the the one thing that's really interesting about just the, the media itself is just that um, that idea of the the maker is always something that's there, you know, something, something that, you know, this is the recorded image of however it's set up. Yeah. And, and I think that when you come to something like a, you know, just like a, you know, whether it be a painting, you know, on a wall or like a, a sculpture that you walk around, I just don't think you get that same kind of perspective. And I, I think it's kind of, I don't know, it just seems like something that, provides a lot of potential then for you to kind of explore those things in your work. Um, you mean the things in terms of asking the, the viewer or prompting the viewer to question or think about its making or its creator or how it was made? Yeah, yeah. I mean, that, that idea of just kind of being open-ended or, or open, yeah. you know, the way that, that I've kind of, you know, botched in terms of describing it a little bit, but um, just the way that everything seems to be very banal but i don't know no no, that's excellent i mean yeah and that's kind of what we had been talking about on some of the before we started the interview is exactly i like how you keep referring to it as having this sort of open space and this that ambiguity is important to me and like you said i'm not making work that's about hitting someone over the head with something like there's no, and I was thinking about this on my run today as I'm often thinking about stuff as I'm jogging, but, um, just this notion of, well, my work. And if I look at various projects, it isn't really about anything. It's not about X. It's a response to, you know, X, Y, or Z. It's a response to a set of things that I'm thinking about. It's not specifically about any one thing that you can name. Um, but so yeah, they're, everything I make is pretty quiet and definitely banal. I embrace that for sure. Um, and, but I'm also really interested in, in beauty too, and that kind of aesthetic as a, as an activator of some sort also. I mean, there's a reason that my, I work in the way that I do and that my work looks the way it does. It could look a lot of different ways, but it tends to, you know, I refuse to kind of, uh, leave beauty behind as much as. I sometimes feel pressure too. When you're looking at like a, a specific um, body of work that you're working through, like these interior landscapes, then, you know, are you just kind of trying to come up with as many ways to kind of compose and include that window, but then also things that might obscure it or, 
things that might be related to it. And I, I think some of them, you know, like there's one that's a, like a bed sheet mm-hmm, and you yeah. kind of start thinking about, uh, I don't know, um, things that it might mimic in nature. And again, maybe that's something that is unintended, but it seems like, I don't know, you start to kind of think about the way that a certain texture looks and might mm-hmm. remind you of another one. Yeah, I like that you brought that one up too because that was sort of there's that one the 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 kind of red ish one with the bed sheet and that's blue window that were kind of the first images that I made that led to that series and they're deliberately um, composed in a, a horizontal format as well so there's a, there's an elongated frame there I had previously been working with the square for a while and so I shifted literally to the landscape format of the composition also. And so, but yeah, I, in terms of my process, it wasn't that calculated ever. Um, it's still not very calculated. It really is kind of, as I was saying earlier, a response to my surroundings or to a certain space in relation to whatever the hell I'm thinking about at that particular time. Um, so it's, but I'm, so I'm not deliberately trying to create a photograph that does something or looks a certain way. It happens more in the editing, to tell you the truth. I, I make a lot of frames, and then I go back, and I make a lot of work proofs, and I put them all up, and I start thinking about relationships or seeing how one photograph might echo another, um, and then I start making sense of it. It's not so uh, calculated on the front end, if that makes sense. Are you shooting then um, tons of photos and doing video or, or what, what was the process like? Because it seems like, I don't know, maybe from around the mid 2000s, maybe mm-hmm. then that it kind of starts to kind of incorporate both. Exactly. And that's a, a really good point, too, because that's precisely what I'm doing. I, I think of it as um, collecting material to then work with after I, I just have to to I gather as much as I can. So anytime I'm photographing and it did start with the interior landscape stuff, that's when I started shooting video as well as photographing and making sure that I had sort of like coverage of the same basic kind of um, imagery that I did in the photographs. Later, I started making sure I had like exact coverage. I wanted like the Goldfield stuff. We can talk about it. I needed the photographs to, to have the exact imagery as the videos, but Early, I was using two different I, – I really don't want to get on a technical <laughs> discussion, but I was using two different cam- – a camera and a video camera, so it was kind of hard to, to match things. And then, you know, when the DSLRs came out that shot video, that kind of ch- um, changed things in an interesting way for me. So now I shoot the photographs and the video with the same camera. So basically, yeah, I'm just gathering all this material and then having a ton of it to sift through when I get back into the studio. And I think that's that's the thing that winds up really changing then too is is just the when you start pairing them up, some of the photographs seem you know very similar in appearance, some of them are slightly different, um, some of them seem a little bit more fragmented than others. You know what are the editing decisions that go on in making some of these pieces? That's such an important area to touch on. I'm going to probably do the worst job trying to address this because it's. One of those things that's so important to how I'm thinking about this, but it's so hard to articulate. But basically, after the interior landscape stuff, I well, during that, I started really thinking about, I grew a little bit frustrated with the singular photographic moment and the, that kind of supposed instant and was wanting to, um, you know, 
prolong certain instance. And obviously you do that through video. I mean, that would be like, well, you know, can't you just make a photograph and a video that moves that, that has a bunch of instants strung together? Well, yes, it does, but there's still something inherently different about how we respond to a stilled photographic moment. And, you know, as a viewer sitting with it, than we do to an image that continuously moves in front of us. I mean, you can fixate on different aspects of the, of the dis- whatever's being described by the uh, camera that then results in a, a print. So basically I was wanting to talk about, start to talk about and think about time in relation to photographic media, which includes film and moving film and video. Yeah, well, I think the other thing that it kind of brings up is like there's the the idea of the multiple or yeah. really especially multiple viewpoints to me. Mm-hmm. But I think just the, you know, the way that you seem to be very open in terms of the, the sources, it's it's something that by kind of including multiple viewpoints, it kind of almost acknowledges that things can change or that, mm-hmm. you know, there's different perspectives on the same thing. Is, is that is that a big stretch that I'm, I'm coming no, up with? Or? That's really a big part of it. It is. I want... I'm thinking about myself being in a particular space and a particular time and just that that problem of identifying any kind of present moment because it immediately is past, you know? So there's this kind of constant, sorry, I'm snapping my fingers. That's going to sound horrible. <laughs> but um, there's, there is just, I love emphasizing just the, the difference that a slight shift can make a slight shift in perspective. Um, and to, that's like what you brought up earlier is how similar some of the diptychs or triptychs are. There's, uh, it's not, so I'm not stitching together, you know, like a big panorama. There's an insistence on the sort of break from each image, but it's it references the way that maybe it does, but it at least what I'm thinking about is the way that we perceive perception in general and its fragmentary kind of nature. Um, and you're not getting that in a single photograph, I don't think. I mean, I don't want to sound like I'm saying there's anything wrong with a single photograph because I still work that way sometimes, but the things that I'm interested in really seem to necessitate me using this kind of multiple or this repetition or this reiteration. Well, one of the things that it brings up to me then is just the the idea that the, the way that you think through your work then is reflected in the work from the time to time series, some of the images have more stable kind of things in them. Like I think the, the first one um, has what almost looks like a pool or like a table. There's another one that kind of includes more of like a room interior. And it seems like there's a, there's a level of just like you're, you're able to kind of as a viewer kind of get back into that space of, of looking at it from your perspective. And for me anyways, it, it kind of makes me, me think about that idea of time evolving and, and if you've ever sat and, and just kind of stared at something for a bit. It seems like that that kind of almost comes across, too. Oh, well, definitely. I'm glad that you brought that up. And also, it's really funny because I'm sitting here staring at those. Some of those images are on my studio wall just because I still have them up there. I don't know why. But the one of the pan of water in particular is sitting there. And, and that's one of the things we haven't talked about that much is my use of um, focus. And so I use this kind of shallow depth of field in many instances to pinpoint, to draw your attention specifically to a specific part of the image, which, you know, that's what I was thinking about earlier on, even with that space of daydream stuff is what happens when we're just kind of 
um, you know, daydreaming or just, you know, being somewhat meditative as much as I don't want to use that word is we find our focus drifting and we find that we're fixating on something we had no idea we were actually looking at. So it does, it does, um, activate that kind of perception, I hope. But it brings up to me the idea then also then of how the, the video work kind of reinforces that as well. Cause you have, you know, these really soft kind of hazy, you know, transitions into focus. Exactly. Yeah. And that's, um, but that, that tree alone stuff that I did has a, a lot of that where I'm really playing around with obscuring focus and throwing, throwing things completely out of focus as the image is moving as well. So that's, I mean, that's just inherently really different perceptual experience as well as to watch your focus shift in front of your eyes in real time, as opposed to seeing kind of a, a stilled photographic representation of that, that shift in focus. You know, what's the relationship then between showing the, the video and the and the photo? Is that something that is shown together? And then what, what kind of scale are these typically at, and how does that affect how they're seen? Yeah, that is probably the most important consideration because it, it completely affects how they relate to each other as photographs and video if they're in the same space, depending on how they're in the same space. How is the photograph printed at what scale? Um, what way is it framed or mounted? And then how is it relating to the video work if it's in uh, proximity to it? So to be honest, um, I have yet to realize the photographs and video works together in a way that I've been satisfied with. Basically, I've shown the the video on its own in ways that I've been satisfied with or the photographs on their own. But you have to be really careful about how you put them together because, like you said, on an LCD sort of monitor on a wall, that's one sort of way that you can interact with the video that can work nicely. In my instances, I haven't seen that work so well yet because I just, the boxy, the objectness of the friggin' container, you know, the LCD screen just gets so in the way. So I prefer the projection, but then if you're going to show the photographs along with that, you have to have a lot of control over the, the space and be able to light things in a certain way. Basically, uh, I really want to find a nice way to show them together so that the, the viewer can interact with those different kinds of representations in a way that will make sense and be open in the way that you've been talking about it. Sure. Well, and it seems like that would be something that would change depending on any number of circumstances, you know, whether it's, you know, you've got a gallery that's only 10 by 10 versus, exactly. you know, all the space in the world. But it also brings up an interesting idea to me in that with the nature of the way that people are interacting with especially computers and other technology, that that presentation would be something that, I don't know, is, is a, a lot to play around with. Initially, I mean, I had these really grand ideas about how I wanted the photographs to uh, be presented right next. Well, I mean, this still could happen. I just don't have the financial resources as part of it is that I would ideally like to have housings built for the monitors that mimic the look of a frame of a photograph so that there's no 
uh, there's not such an obvious distinction between the still photograph and the video monitor. Now, of course, the video monitor is lit from behind, so it's inherently brighter than the photograph, but there are ways to light the photograph to, um, you know, make it at least resemble more the light that's coming, emanating from a screen. Again, this is really stupidly techy, but it's actually important in terms of that presentation stuff you're talking about. So, um, I've also, so what I'm going to work on next is trying to figure out a way to project onto like freestanding plinths or freestanding kind of, um, I don't know what the word I'm looking for is, basically just white big chunks of wood um, that aren't a screen and they aren't a wall. And so having the, the photographs then sort of be surrounding that space. So there'd be multiple um, projections onto these objects in the space and then the photographs would be in proximity to those projections on the wall. And this would be effect, impacted by how the room is lit. Sure, sure. So, yeah, I mean, it's, there's just so, I, I guess when you talk about any kind of work that involves a certain sort of installation, there are just so many things to consider. And I am not a quote-unquote installation artist, so this is this has been just a struggle for me, but it's been a great struggle because it helps me think about the content of the work, too. Could you talk a little bit about the, the relationship of... Uh silence and yeah. I don't know how you might use that. And then, you know, maybe we can finish up here with uh, your most current work. Yeah, no, that sounds perfect because just sort of similarly to how I was saying, Oh, you know, I don't really, I'm never going to not have the figure in my photographs. And now I don't, and I was used to be like, well, I'm never, my work is not about the audio element. It's about this visual representation and it's direct relationship to um, the still image. So I wanted to really focus on the discrepancies and the commonalities between the still and moving image. And when you introduce audio, that's introducing something entirely. So they don't they don't share those things in the same way, if that makes sense. So I wanted I was making these decidedly silent works because obviously the ambient sound or whatever is occurring within your own mind is becoming part of the audio for that work as it would for any, any silent thing. So could you talk a little bit about what went into the, the Goldfield work and, you know, what, what that was about? Cause I believe also you were um, doing another residency. Is that, is that the case? Yeah, exactly. I um, In 2009, I met some really interesting people at a conference in Plymouth, UK, and they mentioned that there was a residency program at the school that they were affiliated with um, called La Trobe in Bendigo, Victoria. And so I ended up applying and getting accepted and doing a residency there. And I'm completely, I guess it was 2011. And so I worked there and I had no idea what I was going to work on exactly when I got there. I was sort of researching the the history of the, the region a little bit, but was more interested in kind of these um, Aboriginal myths and this notion of song lines, which had to do with how um, certain uh, way of making sense of the space of the, the landscape is sort of singing your way through the land. But uh, I was interested in the non non-linear kind of understanding of time there but then I was wasn't really wanting to make work 
about sort of Aboriginal myth necessarily. That's kind of um, difficult territory. Uh, so I uh, found out that the gold mining was a really important part of the, the history in that region. And so it's called the Goldfields region, that part of Victoria. And I just, again, like I was saying with all of my earlier projects, started to just respond to that space. So I would literally go into different um, former mining sites, which are completely innocuous and don't look like anything. They're not any kind of amazing landscape. They don't show necessarily any specific remnants, but they're just kind of these non-spaces but are loaded with this kind of history. So I was photographing and making video in those spaces, and then I really didn't... Um, craft it into anything until I got back. Well, I started working on it there, but then when I got back here, um, I started pairing the diptychs and the triptychs together with the video sequences, which led to this triple projection video work um, that I showed last June in Melbourne, and I'm actually showing it in Portland in a couple of weeks, and then again in um, Kentucky at Murray State. But it, it brings up this idea of the format and installation, you have, yeah. you know, the actual video installation with the three, you know, large projections, but especially the the sound is something that is really striking in, in watching the videos there is, you know, how, how do you feel that this affects the viewer and, you know, what are your intentions about presenting the work like this? You brought up a number of interest, important things there as well. In terms of, we had mentioned we were going to talk about the sound, and I can briefly touch on why that became so important. And it has to do with how I, the sound in that space when I was working in those various different landscapes, the uh, cacophony of crazy bird sounds <laughs> and just the weird twigs snapping under my feet, it's a little odd to be in these strange landscapes by yourself, you know, and it's, uh, Australia has a particular kind of light. Uh, but so these sound, there was, I knew when I was capturing all of this footage that I, I couldn't have these be silent because it was so, the experience was so much about the sound of that space. And there's this kind of a timeless to some of that as well. And so you, you might notice when you listen to it, there's all these kind of Australian magpies and these strange like wind sounds and things. But um, in terms of the installation, it went through a, a few kind of incarnations. I was fortunate to be able to show kind of a work in progress version at our my college um, museum as part of the faculty biennial. And at that point, I was showing like a two-channel version on two different monitors where the um, the shifts, were they weren't synced up together in terms of what was happening. On, they were synced, but it wasn't exactly the same what was happening. There were purposeful shifts. And that led me to realize that, um, it, that A, that wasn't really working. And so I had the opportunity to show at Screen Space, which is devoted to screen-based works, and the the directors and the curator there worked with me on installing that in a really beautiful way that was finally something that worked for me how I wanted it to. So it's very much on three three walls, but it's the same same video, and it's projected simultaneously onto the three walls. So you're not seeing something different in each image. You're seeing something the same, but it's three different representations and perceptual kinds of strange things 
happen. So um, I'm really pleased with how that worked out, which is, but that's going to be, that's a different set of considerations when I show the photographs with them as well, because you can't show photographs in a big black um, box. (laughs) So you've got, you know, a variety of bodies of work going on. Are you kind of working on them and continuing them all at the same time and, and just kind of, I don't know, following up that process? Yeah, that's also, I mean, I've just been thinking about that recently because I, so all of this kind of landscape stuff that I was doing in, when I started dividing my time between North Carolina and Florida, I got really fixated on the the kind of Smoky Mountain landscape. That's sort of what came after that, um, those interior things. And so I'm still going, still working in those kinds of spaces, using that kind of landscape as a subject matter for different things. And then, you know, the, the Goldfield stuff was this kind of project that was a little bit more closed ended than most of my stuff. Cause it, you know, I don't always go back to Australia, but so now I'm working on, like I said, I'm kind of back in interior spaces, but I'm still doing this exterior stuff. It's, it's interesting that you bring that up because it, it's something that I am struggling with or trying to determine whether it's actually a struggle. Like, the, do I need to make sure that all these things are separate or are they of one sort of larger body of work? And for now, I'm not too concerned with, um, you know, uh, a definite answer for that. I'm just, I know that I'm constantly making work based on the same set of concerns it might not look exactly the same way, but it's sort of up to me to figure out where they come together or whether they're their own unique little clumps of sort of projects. Um, I don't know if that makes sense. I, one thing I should say about that too, is I, I come from this kind of tradition of, okay, you've got to make your set of 20 images for your portfolio of photographic work. Like, well, I don't really always do that anymore. And that doesn't make a lot of sense for me. So that's part of the issue. Well, it seems like you've got a lot of a, a lot of different experiences as well than to kind of to play with, you know, a lot a lot to play with in terms of subject and locations, but then also yeah. the, the way that you're presenting it. So it sounds like you're at a actually a really exciting place because you've you've got a lot of possibilities. No, I agree. I mean, I'm probably the most energized that I've been in terms of just doing with my work and just as you say the possibilities for it because I am really starting to realize that I don't need to do everything in the same sort of there's no formula for what I'm doing and there's a lot of it's also as we all know there are so many way different ways to present work now there isn't this the expectations that perhaps were once there in terms of how you encounter work in a gallery or museum or where you encounter it uh, aren't the same anymore so that's pretty great could you just uh remind us again um where these where these shows are coming up and and where the most recent um incarnations of your work are going to be the triple screen uh triple projection of goldfields is going to be at the white box at the university of oregon in portland oh my gosh i think it opens february 7th yes it does and then actually what's really nice about that is there's also going to be a public discussion between myself and two of my friends, um, Leanne Pahapil and Lisa Zare, who wrote the catalog essay for the, the work that uh, was in Melbourne. So we're going to have a nice conversation about that work on February 9th in Portland. And then the 
photographs and the video will be shown. I get, I believe they're opening the fall season at the university galleries at Murray state, uh, in Kentucky in August. Excellent. So we'll, we'll have to make sure to get an announcement when that, when that's going down and when all these things are going down. So again, it's been great, a great pleasure to have you on and, and to talk to you about your work. Yeah, this was really fun. I love that you do this. Thank you. Thanks again to Dawn for joining us. Once again, her exhibition, Goldfields, opens at the Gray Box Media Space at the University of Oregon in Portland's White Box. And that exhibition runs February 7th through March 23rd. So please go ahead and check it out. And another reminder that any of the work that you're interested in can be found and seen at dawnrowphotography.com. So please go ahead and follow the links on this blog entry and check it all out. Since you're looking at work anyways, you might as well check out my work and learn a little bit more about what I do. Again, an easy way to do this is look to the left and you'll see a hyperlink for davidlinaway.com on the Studio Break page. Again, that is davidlinaway.com, and again, I do a variety of architectural-based paintings that kind of combine representation and abstraction elements, and they're really a combination of a lot of different places that I've either been to or sourced or found on the internet. So again, davidlinaway.com, please go ahead and check that out. Another excellent website to check out, especially if you like free music, is the freemusicarchive.org, where they have thousands hundreds, millions of songs to download for free. Again, full albums. And again, it's quite serendipitous. You can come across bands like our intro music today, Broke for Free. Again, the intro song, The Silver Lining, and Taking Us Out is 942 Miles. But again, it's all there, all for free. And you can search by genre and find a lot of great music. So please go ahead and check that out. Once again, please reach us on Facebook. Just search for Studio Break on Facebook and like us there again. It's a great way to find out about upcoming artists, get updates of shows, announcements, um, all sorts of good stuff. So please go ahead and check that out. Again, we've got other great things there right now. There's still time to apply for the Rural America Contemporary Artist jury exhibition i believe that the deadline is february 1st so please go ahead and find the entry form there or check out rural america contemporary artist again that interview with brian frank is still very new so please go ahead and check that out they're doing a lot of great things over there I'd also highly recommend if you scroll down through the Studio Break Facebook entries, you'll also come across the Kentucky National 2013 Exhibition Information. Again, the juror this year is Associate Curator at the Museum of Contemporary Art, San Diego, Jill Dossie. So please apply. Again, this is at Murray State University, the Clara M. Eagle Gallery, which is directed by our good friend Colin Nesbitt. So please go ahead and apply. It's going to be a great show. Once again, you can follow us on Twitter at Studio Break, and you can lastly, again, subscribe to our podcast by looking for us in the iTunes store, search for Studio Break under podcasts. And again, we love it when people reach out, leave us feedback, comments, tweets, so please go ahead and do that. Share it with your mailman, your UPS man, students, faculty, whomever. And I especially want to thank you out there for listening. Really appreciate it, and we hope that you reach out. All right, we'll talk to you real soon, everyone.